0: You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 87. Today we're asking the question, what exactly is systems thinking? Let's get started. Hey everybody. My name's David Proven, I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work, or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. And what's appearing to be a current series now, Drew, we're discussing some of the foundational papers from some of the more popular maybe or um, influential authors in safety. So in episode 74, we discussed a paper by Daniel Katz. I don't think he would have claimed himself as a safety author, but some very relevant ideas for, for us in safety today. In episode 85, we talked about Bertie's paradoxes of almost totally safe transportation systems. What will be last fortnight in episode 86, we introduced Jens Rasmussen, who we sort of framed as the intellectual grandfather of a lot of the recent safety theories. And so now in this episode, Drew pulled out some work by Professor Nancy Levison, and we're going to make quite a few comparisons between Leveson and uh, Rasmussen from the last episode. So if you haven't listened to that, uh, we'll wait, go back to episode 86 and take a listen. But if you're still with us or if you've come back and rejoined us, uh, Drew, let's jump straight into the paper.
1: Yeah, sure, David. I don't know about you, I went down quite a few rabbit holes preparing this episode, but I forgot to check Levison's Rasmussen number. Do you, do you know if Leveson ever actually directly co-published with Rasmussen?
0: No, I do not, but she is no more than one removed.
1: Yeah, that, that that's pretty much what I was thinking. Often when people sort of draw a diagram of people who were influenced by Rasmussen, there's this generation that includes Woods and Holnagel and Levison gets included in that set. So let's go straight into the paper, and then we might talk a bit about Leveson as we go. Uh, So the paper is called Applying Systems Thinking to Analyze and Learn from Events. It was published in the journal Safety Science in 2011. One thing that Leveson is really good at is she makes pretty much all of her work open access. So you can just directly search for the title of the paper and find a copy of it on her website. It's not, a, not available open access through Safety Science, but you can just find a PDF really easily. A little bit about Levison. Levison is particularly well known in the safety critical systems area of Safety Science. So if you do work that involves high technology, in particular software or aerospace, you've almost certainly encountered Leveson stuff before. If you're on more of the occupational health and safety or the well-being side of things, less likely to have directly run into Levison's work. Levison is one of those people who's just a really good writer. I love picking up any of her stuff. She's got a great paper, for example, that just talks about the evolution of steam engines and the different attitudes of UK regulation and US regulation. And you'd think that that would be just a dry topic, but she writes really clearly and well and takes sort of analogies and metaphors and uses examples. So I'd always recommend, some authors, you say you don't go and read the original, but Le- Le- Levison is always easy and fun to read. She's particularly well known for two books. Uh, the first one is a really early one called Safeware, which is one of the first sort of safety critical systems books. Safeware was published in 1995, which was what back while I was still in university, um, it's actually the first book about safety that I ever read. It's one of the things that actually got me into safety engineering as a career. David, did you ever run into Leveson's work before you started your PhD?
0: Yeah, I was familiar with um, well the the second book which you you haven't mentioned, so so I'll mention it, which is Ed- "Engineering a Safer World." And I had a number of process safety and system safety engineers bring that to my attention, the copy of, copy of that book, and that's how I sort of. I probably read Levison's work before I read any of Sidney Decker's or, or Eric Holnagel's world uh work because there wasn't maybe there wasn't as much around of it it's sort of pre- 2008,
1: 2010. So So we try to be fairly neutral on this podcast between about like fights between safety authors. It, it is probably worth mentioning, though, that Levison's a fairly prickly character. And so even though she's co-authored papers with lots of people you might have heard about, she's done multiple papers with Sid Decker, she co-edited one of the foundational volumes of Resilience Engineering with Holnagel and David Woods. She really likes to call out other people in her work. And so she'll put whole sections in her papers, um, or even has written entire papers just criticising other people's approach to safety. And I, and I probably just should for fairness acknowledge that I once worked for Levison, was once fired by Levison. So we, we had our own uh, prickly encounter, but I still really respect. But, but basically my own personal position is I really respect her own work, but I think some of the criticisms she has of other people are often mischaracterizations or are a bit unfair. So don't use Levison as a source of what other people mean. Read the other people first, then read Levison's criticism of them.
0: Yeah, Drew, I, I, I don't know, Nancy, but I suppose a n- number of our listeners would have seen even recently this this year, in fact, her publisher paper on Safety 3. And so um, people asked us to do a review of, of that paper, and we didn't want to do that because we didn't feel it was contributing probably new ideas as much as it was trying to break down other people's contributions. So. Didn't really fit with, with us being neutral, Drew, but yes, but her work on standalone and even rereading this paper that we're going to talk about today, Drew, I, I really enjoyed just reading through. This is a good one to read. This is a good one for people to pick up and read. It, 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 it covers a lot of ground.
1: Just to characterize overall where Levison comes from before we get into the rest of the paper, Levison is similar to the other Rasmusian descendants in that she does see problems with traditional approaches to safety and wants to critique them and provide alternatives. Where she's different is that she seems to sort of mainly characterise that safety, one, the sort of command and control approach to safety is that it's done badly and in the wrong places. Not, she doesn't have the same sort of fundamental disagreement that people like Holnagel have. Well, you know, Holnagel will often drift into language that suggests throw out safety one. He doesn't always mean it. He often backs off from those sort of things. But he's sort of seems to be taking that very attacking position. Whereas Levison is much more saying, you know, we can do this right. We can, I mean, as the says, we can engineer our way towards a safer world, which a lot of the more social scientists don't really believe.
0: And I think we I think there is that clash we we have that clash of um of domains and and worldviews, I think, between the engineering sciences and the human sciences and neither is right or wrong and it's it's um, you know, generally an and I think it's when one camp thinks that they have all the answers where I think it gets particularly problematic. Um you seem to do quite well, Drew, coming from an engineering background and and jumping across into social sciences and we'd almost sometimes forget that you did have an engineering background.
1: Yeah, the, the interesting thing is that Levison comes from a psychology background and goes really? across wow. to engineering. We had one particularly harsh conversation when she accused me of not thinking like an engineer. And in, in hindsight, that was probably actually fair. You know, I'm an engineer who's gone to the dark side. She's a psychologist who's gone across to the engineering side. And the two, the two mindsets really do sometimes talk at cross purposes about safety.
0: Yeah. Okay, Drew. So let's let's get stuck into this um, this paper. There's a there's a bit of ground to, ground to cover. So do you want to sort of frame up the introduction, and then we'll bounce through each of the key sections.
1: Okay. So so if you've done as we asked and you've looked at the most recent couple of episodes, you're going to detect a pattern that almost all of these papers start off in the same way, which is trying to like characterize what is the big problem with safety today that we're trying to address, and often they say a very similar thing. So Leveson starts the paper by saying that major accidents keep happening (laughs) and it's really frustrating that they seem to be preventable because they've got these same causes and it seems like we're failing to learn. So why is this? And she suggests that there are three options. The first one is that in analyzing the accidents, we're not truly discovering the underlying causes. The second possibility is just that learning from experience doesn't work like it's supposed to. You know, this idea that we learn from experience is not all it's cracked up to be. Or we are learning, but we're learning in the wrong places. And we're going to come back later because she is going to actually have a, some good reasons why all of these three things might in fact be happening. Um, but sort of more, more generally, how come it seemed like a lot of this safety stuff was working well previously? that we were in some industries just incrementally getting safer, not just around the occupational health and safety, but around the rate of major accidents. Your aircraft were genuinely crashing less. Railways were genuinely crashing less. How come that is slowed down, is not continuing to improve? And the sort of real answer that she wants to give is that systems are becoming more complex. And the way in which we try to think about that complexity... Is not helping us. We always need to abstract and simplify, but if we do that in the right way, it helps us. If we do it in the wrong way, it hides the real things that we need to fix. So, Drew, if
0: if our listeners listened to last week's episode about Rusperson and and even the one before about verti they did ask these similar questions as you mentioned. And and I don't mind these papers where where authors start with "here's a problem" and here's some hypotheses for what might be causing that problem. Not going to go and research it. I'll just lay out my thoughts about what's what's happening here. And so, Amalberti sort of saw this presence of accidents, this inability for us to maybe eliminate um, or even reduce further accidents and errors is kind of like inevitable. I sort of liken Birdie's thinking in some ways to um, normal accident theory. You know, you just these systems are so complex. At some point, we'll, we'll do a lot to make them safe, but at some point, they'll fail in 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 certain ways. And so that was sort of Amalberti's, I suppose, pre- presence. But Levison really sees any accidents that remain in our, any any remaining accidents that we we haven't prevented as sort of evidence that our existing approaches aren't perfect. If we can get it right some of the time, why can't we get it right and engineer it right all of the time? Is that sort of a fair way of thinking of the way that these papers are being framed through?
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's very fair. And I think you can see the subtle difference in the engineering versus social science thinking. In that someone like Amel Bertie, and I think Rasmussen, but not to the same extent because Rasmussen is a little bit engineer, they're, they're describing an almost inevitable world. This is just the way things are, and my job is to explain it to you. you. Why do we keep having accidents? This is why do we keep having accidents? Whereas the more engineering you get, the more they're taking personal offense at the fact that we're still having accidents. It's not, you know, why are we having accidents? Let me explain it to you. It's why the F are we still having accidents? What are we, what are we going to do about it? And I, I should just explain, because not everyone in the podcast, well, I, we haven't done a list of surveys. So I don't know how many people in, listen to our podcast are engineers, but you know, engineering generally has quite a long education that instills some very particular ways of thinking about the world. And it's not the same as tinkering. So, you know, engineering isn't about just designing stuff from scratch. And often your engineering lecturers will tell you, you know, this is the difference between doing engineering properly and just messing around. Is engineers, before they build something, they predict how it's going to work. They apply science to model the system and to know what the end result is going to be. It's never perfect. So, next time you create a better model and you have a better understanding of how it's going to be. So, you know, if you're trying to make a faster plane, A tinkerer just keeps modifying the plane until it gets faster and faster, whereas the engineer is supposed to know even before they build the plane how fast it's going to be. And if it's too fast, the engineer gets upset. My model was wrong. I've got to have a better understanding of how planes work so that next time I can predict how fast it's going to be. So from that mindset, if you have an accident, that is proof that your model of how accidents are caused isn't perfect. You don't just have to prevent the accident. You've got to go back and fix up your accident model. Yeah, if you can really understand how something works, then you can control it.
0: And I think Drew's like some people sort of get around this this engineering approach by um, arguing that we so or sort of follow this engineering argument that we do know how to prevent incidents. We just don't apply this knowledge properly. And I think what Levison was saying in those earlier things is that um, we can get this right. And so, you know, she she but she wants to understand. I think. Drew, she, she wants to understand that it's not just about making that argument about how do we apply this properly. She really wants to ask why the knowledge doesn't get applied properly. Um, so she sort of goes through the rest of this paper with a few things and is sort of trying to point out in her mind why this knowledge isn't being applied properly, because the way that we're thinking about this isn't allowing us to apply it properly.
1: Yeah. And, and part of that is just extending your model of the system to say, okay, the misapplication of knowledge, that's part of what we need to model. You know, if there's an engineering technique that would stop an accident and we're not following that technique, then we've got to model how we're choosing our techniques and understand that bit as well. So the paper's very neatly in a sort of like set of sections. Each section has its own theme. Each theme is basically around an assumption. And Levison spells out what the assumption is and then deconstructs it.
0: Yeah, I actually like this format and for listeners who, who pick it up and hopefully, hopefully you do pick it up, not actually that long. Uh, a paper, but she starts each of these four sections that we're going to talk through with a core, what she believes is a general assumption, and then sort of outlines an argument and breaks it down. I actually didn't mind that format of a, of a paper, Drew. So the first the first section is safety versus reliability. And she starts with saying there's, there might be this general assumption that, uh, and I'll quote, safety is increased by increasing the reliability of individual system components. If individual components do not fail, then accidents won't occur.
1: And, and so to unpack that assumption, she gives some definitions. And in particular, there's this definition of reliability and definition of safety. So reliability is when something performs its intended function. And that's intended function with respect to its mission. So, you know, if, if we're designing an aircraft, then its intended function is to get the passengers from A to B. Whereas safety is the absence of accidents which is not the same as the intended function. safety is like a side effect of the intended function. You could have an aircraft that got the passengers for A to B, and they all were dead on arrival. (laughs) She would see those as like two different things. Now, for really, really simple systems, the two are closely related. If the brakes on your car are unreliable, that's also unsafe. But as you get more complex, then you can have systems that are made up of reliable components, but getting less safe even as those components get more reliable or as you make components more safe then the system gets more unreliable. So she gives quite a long example about an accident. David I thought might be a bit more useful to give a couple of simpler examples than to talk through the whole accident. But you know a Mm -hmm. simple example of difference between reliability and safety is let's say the post office is delivering parcels. Reliability is getting those parcels to you on time. Safety is about the posties getting hurt. So you could make a rule that increases safety by saying they're not allowed to drive in the rain, but that will make the system less reliable because your parcels are getting there late. Or you could make a rule that posties have to drive really, really fast, which would increase the reliability. The parcels would more often get delivered on time. That would decrease the safety. There'd be more chance of an accident. So sometimes the two compete, sometimes they mean the same thing.
0: Yeah, Drew, I like I, I, I like the the core argument here and um it's it's worth us even thinking beyond the four assumptions that we're going to talk about in this paper. is and, and it's a good reflection exercise for any listener to do is you know what are, what are the assumptions or, that are that are held inside our organization like i've spent a lot of time in organizations trying to challenge just this this saying that good safety is good business because i think this idea of safety and reliability being different things is you know Good safety and good business is a very oversimplified assumption that doesn't hold true once you get into operational environments.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are times when it would be true, but there are also times when it is very, very not true. I think for the sake of clarity, in this section, Levison sort of starts attacking high reliability organisations theory. But the reason she's attacking it is because of their use of the word reliable mainly, which I think was... HROs being social scientists misusing an engineering term. And so she takes them literally and says, okay, they're using this term reliable, they mean reliable. This is what's wrong with their theory. When in fact, I think a much fairer criticism would be HRO theorists aren't engineers, they're misusing engineering terminology. <laughs> they should have called it something else. So, David, are you okay if we sort of just skip that whole attack on HROs?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think and her point is just who's probably just saying it's a HSO theory, like a high safety organization. Rather than reliability, so choose if you choose your language carefully is is the lesson there, and I think we can move on.
1: Yeah, okay, but, but there there is a sort of more fundamental disagreement that I think is fairer and more interesting, which is HRO theory says that we build up safety by deferring expertise to the front line, and we make things locally safe and locally resilient. And Levison says that. The more complex your system gets, that sort of local autonomy becomes dangerous because the accidents don't happen at that local level. So, you know, if someone is laying bricks, sure, they're an expert in laying bricks. They can understand that the way they lay that brick might strain them, might get hurt. They're probably the expert in how to do that safely. But if the bricks that they are laying are part of the shell around a nuclear reactor, then they can't see any of that. They don't understand that getting the precise angle on those bricks is important because for them getting their job done, that's irrelevant. You gotta have someone who knows the whole overall shape to know that the angle matters. And so there are lots of situations where that like very safety to idea that work is the expert in their own work is not in fact true. They're experts locally, but the hazards are invisible to them there globally.
0: Yeah, Drew, I really I think that's an important point. Um, just to reinforce another example, I've spoken a lot to some of the authors, some of the other authors around this, this idea of deference to expertise means autonomy in the front line and the workers are best placed to decide, you know, how to safely perform their work. Um, true in simple craft related systems, like I think the the original examples, if like if someone's been a hairdresser for 45 years or if someone's been a shoe shoe shiner or something, but You know, in my last organizational role, I always thought, I don't want an operator in major hazard facility to be walking around and deciding for themselves which valves they turn, what sequence they turn those valves in, where they push product through the system and that, because they don't have the perfect information of the functioning of the whole system. They might not understand um, all of the technology. And so I think what um, Nancy's saying here is that people can think they're being safe in relation to their own work and their own experience and their own knowledge of the system, but they can be dangerously changing the dynamics of the way the system works to be overall much less safe.
1: And I think this is one of the reasons why safety people talk past each other sometimes, is that if we're talking about totally different systems, then of course we're going to have different assumptions. Um, And what tends to happen is people try to adopt techniques that have worked apparently well in fields like aerospace And they're shifting those techniques into other organizations like construction. And we're changing the fairness of that assumption that the real hazard happens at the system level. Yes, there are some things in construction, like whether your building is going to fall down, where absolutely you don't want the local worker changing the arrangement of the bolts. They may be what seems like a simple, meaningless change to them, may in fact change the load on the entire structure. But most of the time in construction, the safety is to do with the immediate safety of the worker and the people around them. And the kind of very designed, very top-down approaches that work in aerospace don't work where the worker genuinely is the expert in their own safety.
0: So, Drew, what was Leveson's answer then to this relationship between reliability and safety?
1: Okay, so, so this is a little bit of deep dive, David. I apologize for this, but I don't think I could explain Nancy's stuff without actually unpacking this whole idea about what do we mean when we talk about systems thinking?
0: Perfect, Drew. Hence why I just, uh, I read the first line of that and went, Drew can take care of this much, much better than me. So hence the question. So what does Levison have to say about reliability and safety? And what does Drew have to say about what Leveson has to say?
1: Okay, okay. so, so I, I don't actually really have any criticism of this. I just need, it, it's a bit of a historical thing. So when Leveson talks about systems, she's particularly talking about a thing called systems theory which is itself kind of vaguely defined because it was originally German and in translate that translation to both systems and theory is a little bit imprecise. And so the whole field of systems theory has very grey boundaries. But Levison is working with a subfield known as cybernetics. She chooses the word systems instead of cybernetics, which is not unfair, but I, I think cybernetics is more precise. The overarching idea of any sort of systems theory is that there are principles about how systems work that are common to all systems, regardless of what the system is. So basically humans work the same as airplanes, just with different technology. There are some things about both of them that can be made up of how do you get a bunch of individual components all doing their own thing that work together to create these emergent behaviors. So, you know, with, with humans, it's like little blood vessels and hormones and cell walls With aircraft, it's electronic systems, mechanical systems, laminar flow of air. But ultimately, systems theory says, how do you take all those little components and get things like flight or human movement out of them? Cybernetics is one particular approach, which says that we look at everything using circular causality, feedback loops. So a feedback loop is just where one component sends commands to another component, which produces outputs that go back to the first component. So, you know, the really simple example that everyone uses is a thermostat. Thermostat, if it's too cold, it tells the heater to turn on. When it gets hot enough, the thermostat tells the heater to turn off again. So you can imagine this little loop with arrows going from the thermostat to the heater, back to the thermostat. And you can make that as complex as you like, because you can put another component monitoring the thermostat and another component monitoring that component. And you have another component, which is measuring patterns in the whole thing and trying to predict when the thermostat's going to turn on or off and preemptively manage your heating so that the heating comes on and off before the temperature drops too low. And eventually you've built up a massively complicated computer that's as sophisticated as a human. And that was the dream of cybernetics is basically that we could build humans out of the massively complex arrangements of feedback loops. And it never got that far. There are some mathematical reasons actually why it would never have worked. And so we had the field of AI went off in a bunch of different directions. That's why cybernetics isn't talked about a lot today, but it appears in all the sci-fi from the 1950s and 1960s. You always hear people talking about cybernetics because people thought that was the future of technology, was mimicking any system made up of transistors creating feedback loops. But this is where that whole criticism that you hear people in safety, particularly in New View Safety, talk about all the time, complaining about linear views of safety, Ultimately that comes from this idea of systems theory. A linear system is usually just one that doesn't have feedback. And the tricky thing about feedback is you imagine trying to work out the chain of events. If we don't have linear feedback, then A causes B causes C. But the moment you got feedback, C causes A. (laughs) And so trying to unpack it going backwards doesn't work because you just end up in an infinite loop. And that's the whole complaint that Levison has is you're trying to model things as chains of events you just end up in circles because real systems always have feedback. So just as a very classic Levison example, he's got a diagram in the paper that I recommend anyone look at because just as this diagram explains the way Levison sees the world. The lowest level of the diagram is a physical process. So maybe it's a pump, maybe it's an engine, maybe it's a circuit, and it's being controlled by actuators and being monitored by sensors. So that's your basic little feedback loop. But then you keep going through the diagram and eventually you get to Congress making laws and holding hearings, and that's a feedback loop. And they're all connected by just different layers of feedback. So Congress is connected to the regulatory agencies, which is connected to higher management in companies, which is connected to middle management companies, which is connected to the engineering processes, which go sideways to the manufacturing processes, all of which comes down to, is the engine getting controlled properly by the actuators and the feedbacks? And to understand the system, you got to understand that whole picture. You can't just say the engine broke.
0: Yeah, so I think Drew. Yeah, sorry, I was enthralled just listening. So in in this section on safety and reliability. So I guess if what Levison's saying is that reliability is typically a lot about component reliability, individual component reliability. I mean that's what the RAMS assessment kind of is. And here she's saying actually safety as a as a property of that system isn't the sum of the reliability of the individual components. So she sort of just basically just, that's the argument behind saying this is not an assumption that we should hold if we're trying to improve safety.
1: Yeah. And she says, in fact, that we should really just think about them as two separate things. All of our systems are designed both for reliability, which is getting the mission done, and for constraint, which is getting the mission done in an acceptable way. And the biggest constraint is usually about safety, but you can also include things like you know environmental laws fit in there as well. There are only some acceptable ways of doing things. And our systems have to manage both the getting the stuff done and the keeping it constrained. We've got to understand how all our management processes, our laws, all our cultural influences work to do control and feedback to keep those two things in check. And so, Drew, you're right. Can we move on to the second section
0: now? You're right for that. Yep. Let's go for it. Awesome. So the second section Levison titles retrospective versus prospective analysis. So really, it's it's um, do we analyse what's happened or do we try to analyse and predict what, what might happen? And Levison states this assumption at the start is that there's a general assumption that retrospective analysis of adverse events is required and perhaps the best way to improve safety. So that, I think, Drew, might be a generally held assumption in safety. Let's look at incidents that occur to see how, what we need to do to improve. And in fact, that's probably one of the most central processes we can
1: have. Yeah, in fact, I'd say if there was one thing that almost everyone in safety agreed on, it would be that one.
0: Well, it might be. Oh, you mean agreed that that is true or agreed that that is a general assumption?
1: I I would say agreed that it's true. Even the people who who say it's not true still write entire papers where they're analysing past events so we, yeah, we all we all, right. know, even, we all try to use bad things as ways of explaining how to do the good things.
0: And even practitioners who don't think incident investigation is particularly useful still do lots of incident investigations in their role. Got it. Okay, so it very okay. Let's consider it. A, let's consider that a central logic for safety. So, how does Nancy break this apart, Andrew? I don't because you you did it. It looks like you did a history of um Airbus in in this section as well.
1: David, I don't know if this is just the way my mind works, but I I, I try to give an example and then i worry about whether the examples correct so i go and have to look up the history of it so yes um, i don't know okay, if it's well, let spoiled. me
0: frame a few of these points let me frame a few of these points and then i'll throw to you for examples you uh,
1: sure but yeah yeah just just to pull back the curtain we've got like two sentences in our script here that involve an hour of deep dive into trying to understand accident reports about the mars polar lander
0: Perfect. All right. The core, the core themes of, of Levison's argument here is that looking at what has gone wrong in the past is never enough. And that accident analysis has been pretty successful in fields where the basic technology changes very slowly. And she's called out here things like aeroplanes, trains, and nuclear power stations. So feedback loops make the designs better. So if an accident occurs, I can feed forward the lessons from that into the design of model B, model C, model D of of that particular technology. And she also says it's a terrible feedback loop. So point that I just made, if the accidents in the investigations are happening much more slowly, then the technology is changing then there's kind of no point. If I learn about something that's gone wrong to a model and I've already released it into production, the next model, then kind of I've, I've missed that opportunity.
1: Yeah. So a couple of examples here, just to, how slowly planes change. I don't know who's been on a plane recently. David, I know you've had a couple of flights.
0: I got one and I'm fingers crossed, Drew, about the time that this episode comes out. I may even be overseas, but that's, um, yeah, <laughs> it's a wild three weeks to happen between now when we're recording this and and then.
1: You know, if, you, if you go on a plane, there's a good chance that it's going to be a Boeing 747 or an Airbus A330 or one of the direct variants of those two planes. And those first flew back in the early 1990s. So that's, you know, just how long we've had these fundamental designs. And before the A330, the previous one was the A300, which was 1972. So it's going back another 20 years. So even though there aren't that many aircraft accidents, that's a lot of opportunity to incrementally improve the design of those aircraft to make them super, super safe, that anything that was wrong with the design, we can fix. And still keep playing flying the plane for 20 years later, benefiting from that fix. It's worth doing a two-year-long investigation.
0: Yeah, Andrew, I always there used to be a I don't know if it's still true now, but I remember um a saying when when I was sort of in my first lots of cars, and you know how like cars every two or three years they'd roll out a new series, you know, like and then roll out a couple of models of that. And it used to always be a saying is never buy the first model of a new series of car. <laughs> Just um, wait for the subsequent models that are where the uh, engineers had a chance to iron out all of the bugs in the first model.
1: Yeah, yeah. My variant on that is that aircraft are totally safe on average, but the very first year after a new aircraft comes out, and once they get sort of twenty years old and beyond that, that's not average. That's <laughs> that's when the accidents are happening.
0: So there's a sweet spot. All right. Good to know.
1: So, so compare that with planes, that's like really slow evolution of technology, lots of opportunities to improve for accident investigation. And I think most people would agree that even if they got problems with accident investigations, the places where it tends to work pretty well are things like aircraft. Um, But compare that to uh, the Mars Climate Orbiter, which is a really fun accident we should talk about sometime, basically crashed into the Mars atmosphere in September, 1999 And they're immediately investigating it because they've got another spacecraft, the Polar Lander, on its way. It's already been launched. It's already heading towards Mars, possibly going to have the exact same accident. So they rush the investigation report of the Climate Orbiter. They get the report out in early November. And every section of that report basically says, here's what went wrong. And here's what you need to know about how this might affect the Polar Lander. So they're trying to beat that cycle, get the accident investigation out in time before the thing technology changes. The polar lander arrives in December, a month after the accident report, and it crashes. And it crashes for a totally different reason, because it's using a landing system that wasn't on the climate orbiter. In fact, it wasn't on any previous spacecraft. There is no way we could have used accident analysis to fix what went wrong with the polar lander. And the subsequent missions didn't use the same landing system. <laughs> so even what we learned from that investigation, we couldn't use for future systems except don't do this. Um, and that's the problem with fast technology. And so Levison says, this is why our hazard analysis can't be based on looking at what, what we know goes wrong. Because what we know goes wrong is too late. The technology has moved on. We've got to have ways of analyzing systems that we have never seen before, with failure modes that we've never seen before and interactions that we have never seen before. And sometimes that means we've got to eliminate hazards that we can't even identify or predict. We've got to have methods that can deal with things that we can't predict, which seems almost like a contradiction.
0: Yeah, it does. And I think it does in some ways, but I think that the argument there and the examples that you've given, Drew, are sort of exactly why if we think we 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 can't simply think we're safe because we're not having incidents and if we do have an incident, think that by fixing that particular failure mode then we're back to safety again I think that's this core argument Levison's got here that, that that's not enough because things will, will fail in 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 new ways uh, we'll always keep continuing to fail in new ways so she talks about hazard analysis which won't be a new term for anyone in well for many people in safety or or in engineering Um, And she sort of says, look, this has been used for very dangerous systems for half a century. Uh, We can identify the causes of accidents that have never occurred previously so that we can prevent them from occurring uh, the first time. So we start by looking at known failure modes, or we start by looking at interactions among system components instead of starting by, and sorry, starting by identifying these hazardous states. So what happens if the aircraft continues to climb? What happens if, 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 if this state or mode of operation occurs? Then we try to determine how they might be made possible. And then we try to understand how we can adjust the design of that system to make that less possible or, or eliminate that potential state. So Drew, if I, as a non-engineer, if I sort of described the hazard analysis type process there, or have I made a meal of that?
1: No, I, I think you've got that spot on, David. And to sort of move towards how Levison implements this, I think we need to sort of like move on to the next section and talk about the causation models. So Levison says that in any sort of accident investigation, we've really got three levels that we look at. Um, the first level is the basic, uh, what she calls the proximal event chain. And I really like that term proximal. It sort of gets away from either root cause or main cause, or it's just proximate. So the proximal event chain is the things that happen directly associated with the accident. Then we've got the conditions that allowed those events to occur. And then we've got the systemic factors that contribute to both the conditions and the events. And she says, and I'd be interested in your view about how fair this is, David. She says most accident analysis techniques are pretty good at identifying the proximal chain of events. And they're pretty good at identifying the conditions underlying those events. But that's because they rely on an assumption that cause and effect are directly related. So long as you can see the causes happening, you can see that this causes that. You can get the chain of events very easily, and then you can get the conditions fairly easily because you can draw a direct arrow between each of the conditions and one or more of the events that happened.
0: Yeah, and I think I think the use of the word cause there might be particularly problematic, but I think what you've what has been described there by is 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 a reflection of of what typically happens. So. I also like the, like the word proximal as opposed to like a sharp end, blunt end sort of distinction. And I you hear sometimes in incident investigation where people will say, Oh, we went right back to the start of the shift and looked at everything that had happened since the start of the shift all the way through until hour number six when the incident occurred, thinking that they'd done this very long kind of broad understanding of, um, of, of what happened. Um, but that's a snapshot in time in sort of you know, the, the system functioning as as a whole. So I think, Drew, that then lets people go, okay, turned up to work, then did this, and then that co- that contributed to this, and then that contributed to this, and then this decision was made, and then this and this and this. Okay, we know exactly what happened. We know the conditions that were present at the time. We know, and therefore, we know why it occurred, and then this big leap to, and therefore, we know how to make it not happen again.
1: But Levison says that systemic factors, the reason why they don't show up a lot in accident reports is just because it's so hard to draw a causal link, that they're too indirect, which means that for most investigators, they feel very... She didn't really talk about the psychology of investigators, but I think it matters here, is that people feel uncomfortable or they feel that they might be challenged or even just that their techniques don't support this idea of putting in a cause that you can't directly link to the accident. And so the example I was thinking of, David, is why applying things like Icam people so often when they go to organizational factors just put down things like supervisor actions because you can make a like causal link between the supervisor and the work but it's even though it might be true it's very indirect to draw a link between the CEO and the work
0: yeah and I think if I if I give an example of this and and we're going to talk a little bit about actually I'll, I might do that after drew do you want to just talk about Levison's sort of Critique, or it's probably a kind word. Critique <laughs> you got here in the note. true has <laughs> got here in the notes. Levison takes a real shot at the five wise method. So, do you want to um, describe what that looks
1: like? Yeah, I mean, I always get frustrated when Levison does this at people that I like or at things that I think she's being unfair about. But she doesn't mince words. She just chooses something that she doesn't like, directly calls it out, directly names it, directly criticizes it. And so she says, like, certain techniques. Let me just. Say, particularly the five whys method, why is five whys bad? So just, just for anyone who doesn't know, the idea of five whys is you see, you see something happen and you just say, okay, so sure that happened, but why? And the idea is you do that five times. The five being a bit of an arbitrary number. It doesn't have to be five, but it just takes you backwards. Supposed to lead you to more distant, more systemic causes. But she said each time that you ask why... You don't find the whole possible stretch of answers, you just find a small number of answers to that why question. And your answers are, they're going to be different for different people, so they're not repeatable. And more importantly, why do different people come up with different answers? Because people say what they already know or they already assume is important. So we're not actually spreading out to all of the answers to the why. We're just having one or two answers, which takes us down a narrow path. And so the result is that even though we think we've got a technique that's supposed to help us get towards systemic answers, actually it doesn't. Actually, it only helps us with what we already know of, at, which tends to be very strictly causal and misses out on the full range of indirect causes.
0: And I think, Drew, with incident investigation like this and and that is 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 I mean we could have a long and we have had a long podcast on this and safety work idea in terms of just organizations wanting a simple, clean answer. So that's why there's still this desire for root cause and and so I know sort of this idea of root causes being so if you look at an incident, say you pick Chernobyl, I know it's been claimed that you know the root cause of Chernobyl was someone not following procedure. Or the root cause of Chernobyl was a complete failing of the economic, political, and energy approach throughout Europe. So, and the example I was going to give before, Drew, was my own involvement in an incident where the root cause was someone used a wrong tool. And when you actually went in and tried to really get underneath that, it was the person had selected a wrong tool because that tool was available to them, because they wanted to get their job done quickly, because time was becoming increasingly important, because the company had just put in place a new scheduling system to monitor productivity. They'd put the wrong timings for certain jobs into that system, and were encouraging some jobs to be done much faster than they could ever be done. And that was being done because of the financial position of the organisation, due to it just being acquired, but privately from a from a government organisation, due to the need for sort of shareholder returns from the from the parent company. So a person using a tool was kind of like related back to um, transfer of ownership and and financial targets within a shareholder company. Now, I'm not saying that's a direct causal chain, but if I then put an incident investigation report on the table that says the owner of this particular company needs to change their financial targets, like that's a strange conversation for an organization to have in response to a safety incident. Is that sort of what you, that kind of why these, these things never quite get to, you know, any, but the, the, the principle that Nancy said at the start, which is we're never actually fixing the causes of, What's actually happening in the business.
1: Yes, and particularly she says we're focusing on the wrong causes. There's a direct quote that I think I'll just give the exact quote because it says it better than I can. She says Accidents are often viewed as some unfortunate coincidence of factors that come together at one particular point in time and lead to the loss. This belief arises from too narrow a view of the causal timeline. Systems are not static. Rather than accidents being a chance occurrence of multiple independent events, they tend to involve a migration to a state of increasing risk over time. A point is reached where an accident is inevitable unless the high risk is detected and reduced. And the particular events involved are somewhat irrelevant. If those events had not occurred, something else would have led to the loss. So she's basically saying, you know, you, well, she's directly saying the particular events don't matter. Any number of those particular events could have happened, and if we try to like focus too much on those individual events, we miss the things that would have led to other events. And she says elsewhere in the sorry, David,
0: no, you keep going.
1: Oh, she just says elsewhere in the paper that you know if we we don't sometimes consider what else would have happened if we put in place our recommendation, sure, our recommendation would have stopped this, but then that would have happened instead.
0: And I think what well, all I was going to say is we encouraged our listeners at the start of this episode to go back to our previous episode, um, modeling dynamic risk with uh, from Jens Rasmussen. And so we said we we're going to draw some distinctions. I mean, if you close your eyes and listen back to that quote that Drew read out, it could um, it could easily be lifted just straight out of Rasmussen's paper that we discussed last week. Is-
1: yeah, David, I think you made the claim that Rasmussen made a sort of fundamental change in how we think of accident causation. And no one else has ever sort of shifted us back away from that. And I think we can say here that this is the Rasmusian causation model. Leveson is just lifting it directly and applying it.
0: And I think that's really interesting when we said about some of the, the authors that we speak about quite often and, and when we talked about that is that I think they're underlying, I think they would all put their names to, to that quote that is being read out. We maybe just then emphasize different points and have different ways of of trying to get to that.
1: Yeah, we we have, David, we've speculated before about different ways of sort of like teasing out different safety beliefs or safety assumptions. I think this particular model would be a really interesting litmus test to just like throw on. I don't know if you've noticed how much LinkedIn recently has just been overpopulated by polls. It's like anytime anyone I know likes a poll, immediately it comes up on my feed, even though it's irrelevant. But this would be a great thing to just do a yes-no poll on is here is a model about how accidents happen. Do you think this is the way the world works or don't you? And I'd be just curious how many people like completely buy into this and how many people have reasons for rejecting it and
0: I do. Well we've got about three thousand followers on the LinkedIn page. So if you write the you write the poll question and the answers, I'll post it up before we publish this episode and it'll be interesting. We might have the results beforehand. I was I thought where you're gonna go with that poll was, you know, to ask people, yes, no, do the particular events involved in an incident, are the events involved in an incident relevant for, you know, for making improvement? Yes or no? <laughs>
1: yeah, I think you gotta give the full quote for context there. Um I, I think often we do dumb things down to like such simple statements that we cause false okay. controversy and safety.
0: Very good point. Very good point. I was being quite um antagonistic with that with that um question. Good, good um
1: uh, so you, you, had, you had something else in our notes here about mental models that I thought might be worth talking about for a bit.
0: Oh, it's just, there's a diagram in the paper where, where Leveson, and we've, got to, we've always got to remember when things get published. So this is published in 2011, and she talks about a, a there's a model there that says here's the actual model, here's the actual system, which is, I suppose, from an engineered point of view, the, the, the as built, this is what the system actually is. And then there's a model which is the, the designer's model of the system, so what's in the head of the designer. And then there's the operator's model of the system. You know, what's the what's in the model of the operator? And she talks about these gaps and um and and the gaps between those three mental models or three representations of the system. And I like the way um Woods talks about this, where he where he says things like the system always does what it was designed to do, it's just not what the designer intended. And I think in there, even the language that she's using is we would we would um interpret very closely aligned now to like workers imagined work has done. How does the designer think that's going to happen? How does the system actually work? And, and, you know, those perspectives. So I just thought that was good because this is 2011 before some of those things became popular. She doesn't actually use any of that language, but she's trying to make the readers aware that there is these different perspectives of the system or, or something. So I just thought it was a useful um, tie-in back to other things that we talk about a lot in safety.
1: Yeah, just a slightly indirect point there, David, One thing that's sort of like cursed safety science a little bit as a field is we tend to cite less than other people do. So if you sort of look at most cited papers, I think some of the really important papers in safety are cited less than they would be if they were like in a niche medical field or something like that. Always curious with things like this, how much people have independently come up with the ideas versus how much they have read each other and been influenced by, but just not directly cited versus how much they're just sort of drawing on the same deep well of ideas. A lot of what Leveson's doing is drawing on a deep well of cybernetics theory. I wonder if maybe some of those other authors, like Rasmussen, are influenced by that, or whether it's because Leveson has directly read lots of Rasmussen and been influenced by it, or whether she's actually going to be sitting in a room having a conversation with Holnagel, and they both then go away and write different papers that express that conversation in different ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah, or standing in front of a whiteboard and genuinely trying to come up with something, something new, or trying to figure something out for for herself. But it is a good point about citations: is you know you can't, we can't just assume in safety that because a person hasn't referenced, it's their idea.
1: But but on the other hand, maybe this is the way the world works, and just two separate people discovered it.
0: Yes. So, Drew, do want, let's do some practical takeaways. Do you want to? You, 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 do you want to get us started?
1: Okay. So, so the first one is Levison in this paper isn't talking directly about her most popular technique called stamp. But stamp, all of the ideas in this paper are what gave rise to stamp as a technique. So, you know, if you're looking for how do I do all this stuff that Leveson's talking about, she does give much more direct instructions elsewhere. And if you like the ideas, it is worth trying out the stamp modeling technique. I've given lots of students this technique to do, and students generally find it a bit harder than other techniques. But I think it's simpler than things like Fram, which are even harder still. So it's a good sort of middle ground between very difficult modeling techniques and very simple modeling. And the great thing is that even if you don't do the technique exactly the way she says to do it, I still think you get something out of trying to map out the feedback loops inside your organization's processes. I've often said, you know, a safety management system is supposed to be a set of feedback loops. And if you can't draw it like that, then maybe your system's not working the way it's supposed to be working.
0: Andrew, I'm not sure if we've done we use the word stamp there, and people can look that up. And there's lots of papers. But um, just thinking there, you know, maybe when we get through wherever wherever we get to with this little uh, run we're having of uh, some of these foundational papers, we could do a kind of a what is series, like what is stamp, what is fram, what is a learning team, and we could maybe we could actually explain some of these things, like back to the source, you know, what what these things actually are.
1: Yeah, that could be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to try to describe a diagramming technique through an audio podcast.
0: Yes. Yeah, well, medium is important. So, um, but we can, we can sort of paste some pictures somewhere. I don't know. And the second, your second takeaway. The
1: okay, second one is that investigations should focus on fixing the part of the system that changes slowest. So if you're designing railways, then probably it is the technology that changes slowest. You should be doing investigations that can come up with improvements to railway design. But More often, Leveson says, it's the broader company system that changes slowest and the technology moves really fast. So changing the technology is not going to help you. You've got to change the system that produces the technology. And I think you can do that within any single accident investigation. You know, if, if, if Joe falls off a ladder on Tuesday while changing a light bulb, you've got to say, what's the longest constant here? Is it Joe? Is it the fact that we're changing light bulbs? Is it the fact that we were using a ladder in this particular case? Pick the part of it that changing it is going to change it for a broad class of people for a long period of time, not that's going to change this particular event that's already happened.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good reminder for our response to incidents in in all organisations. And last point here that you've got is, you know, again, replaying back to that quote earlier, for dynamic systems, the exact frontline events and intervening in the exact frontline events really doesn't matter that much for improving safety. Um, And I think that's a fundamental mindset shift.
1: I, I quite like Levison's approach to this, which is spell out the sort of three areas. We've got the immediate proximal events. Sure, in the accident report, describe them. We might not even need to evaluate them. We might just need to tell the story. This is what happened on the day. This is what happened on the week. This is what happened in the month. Then have a section that talk about the conditions that allowed that to happen. And then have a section that talks about what are the broader systemic factors that we need to be aware of. And don't worry too much about proving the precise links between those things, because proving the precise links just weakens our ability to talk about this. those systemic factors. Just treat them as separate topics that are worth thinking about when you're thinking about how to prevent accidents.
0: Perfect, Drew. Thanks. Great takeaway. Thanks to the idea. We might just run off and create a create a new model of incident investigation so that companies can um, replace their frustration with some of their existing systems like, like ICAM and Taproot and 5Y and others. So look out for that in uh, 2022. <laughs> Maybe. True. Side hustle for Drew. <laughs> Perfect. So, Drew, the question that we asked this week was, what exactly is systems thinking?
1: So at its broadest, systems thinking is just adoption of that Rusmusian causation model. So that is that the accident arises from a change in risk over time, which then gives rise to the specific events but what we need to look at is what's causing that change in risk over time, not necessarily those specific events. They could have happened in any number of ways, any number of people, any number of times. Levison's particular brand of systems thinking involves two specific things. One of them is extend what counts as your system as broadly as possible to include your design processes, your regulatory processes, your management processes. And then secondly, understand that system as an interacting set of control and feedback loops trying to do two things, to maintain the mission and to constrain the way you achieve the mission. So to do Levison's style of systems thinking, you've got to do all of that. More generally, it's really just the Rasmussen model.
0: Excellent. Great. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com.